that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome back to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the North American Anglican Online Journal. You can find that at uh, northamanglican.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Jesse Nigro, no spaces. Uh, and you can find the Miserable Offenders podcast at uh, miserable underscore pod on Twitter as well. And today I'm joined by my venerable friends. Let's start with Father Isaac. Well, hello. Good to uh, good to be back with you, gentlemen. And uh, yes, I am Isaac Rayberg, the Archdeacon for Liturgy in the Anglican Diocese of the West and the Rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas. And we also are joined by uh, Venerable Andrew Brazier. Hey, Andrew Brazier here, Archdeacon in the Jurisdiction of Armed Forces and Chaplaincy, uh, where I serve as a Rector for Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Pelham, Alabama, and also serve as their uh, chancellor. Good to be with you, gents. How are y'all doing today? I'm doing great. Doing well. Um, yeah, I, we're also joined somewhat by the fourth unofficial miserable offender. That's my uh, eight-month-old, and she's a little chatty today. So if you hear some commentary that really offends you today, it was probably her. We'll blame it on her, <laughs> at least. Um, she doesn't have a Twitter handle, so... Uh, you can't really find her to to voice your uh, disagreement, but so it is. So it is. She um, checks all the hate mail for us. So. Right. Uh huh. She says blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Gonna get the same same <laughs> response to all the hate mail. Um, well, hey, today we're here to continue a conversation we began in our last episode, which was um, sort of in response to the question of how might Anglicans go about um, being part of the healing of a fractured North American Anglican church? Or you could say, the, the, what, is, what about the problem of overlapping and sometimes uh, simply disunified uh, Orthodox Anglican jurisdictions? Um, and so we spoke about the first... Uh, we might call bulwark of the Anglican faith last time as being common prayer, which uh, launched us into some good discussions uh, relating to some recent prayer books. We had the uh, 2019 uh, ACNA's Book of Common Prayer, Traditional Language Edition. We also discussed the uh, 1662 International Edition of the Book of Common Prayer. So if you want to hear more about that stuff, uh, you skip too far. Go back an episode and and listen to that. We'd we'd be glad to hear what you thought. Um, but as we're sort of uh, still on this subject of the importance of common prayer for Anglican faith 
uh, identity and and so on. Uh, one one sermon sort of stands out to me, and we we discussed this a little bit last time, or in in between shows, by uh, the Bishop George Cummins, who uh, would later become the founder of the Reformed Episcopal Church. And this is one that we'll throw in the show notes. You can find it on uh, Project Canterbury. And this sermon is called Claims of the Prayer Book Upon Protestant Christendom. And he's really uh, making the case here for a unified, not just Anglican church in his own time, you know, the Protestant Episcopal Church was still one. If you can, it, it's so hard to even think of that now of like, you know, zero breakaway jurisdictions. Not even one, come on. Nobody got mad. Uh, and to think that you could walk into any Anglican church in North America and more or less uh, find a spiritual home if you happen to be of that tribe. But even with that amount of success, we've got Bishop Cummins at the time uh, saying, this isn't good enough. We need to be reaching out to our fellow uh, evangelical Protestant Christian friends and welcoming them to embrace common prayer, this bulwark of the Anglican faith, um, in the you know a, as a way to sort of reunite our little corner of uh, Christendom, or uh, you could say our our section of the hallway, to use C.S. Lewis's. Uh, imagery from mere Christianity. Um, so that's kind of, in in that spirit, I think we're going to talk about ecumenical relations and how they relate to uh, this issue of uh, Anglican identity. But I've rambled too long. Um, <laughs> gentlemen, uh, any follow-up points that you want to make about common prayer, this coming sermon or um, ecumenical relations in general here at the start. You know, I was just going to add that we, we talked, you know, kind of ad nauseum last uh, episode on the problem of not having common prayer and therefore not having common theology. But the beauty of, of having the, the classic prayer book language of having common prayer from, you know, um, I guess you could argue it's been, you know, a century uh, almost since we've had a common prayer in the American tradition uh, to the 1928, is that there's a lot of unity in terms of, uh, of dare I say, mere Christianity, to kind of reference Lewis again. Um, that particular sermon, which I, think I encourage anybody to, to check out that specific show note, because that sermon is short, sweet, and to the point. But there was a quote that really struck me that uh, the Bishop Cummins writes, and that is, he says, quote, Hence, the theology of the prayer book is not the confession of Augsburg, nor that of the Synod of Dort, nor yet the Catechism of the Westminster Assembly. It is not Lutheranism, nor Wesleyanism, Calvinism, nor Arminianism, but it does embrace all that is precious and vital truth in each of these human systems, yet committing itself to none. And a disciple of each of these schools may find in it that which gives rest to his soul. I think that may be one of the most beautiful sentences I've heard on describing the prayer book tradition and why, as Anglicans, if we're good stewards of uh, what we've been gifted, we can present a unifying form of mere Christianity uh, across the, the great divides of Christianity. 
And there's there's unfortunately a little bit of irony in uh, in, in the fact that this is um, uh, George George Cummins um, is that just about ten years after this sermon will be the first major schism in the uh, Episcopal Church. Um, and and my understanding, right. you know, George, George Cummins being the founder of the Reformed Episcopal Church, and my understanding is that part of this has to do with the fact that Cummins did want to be a lot more ecumenical than the Episcopal Church was willing to be at the time. That's not the only reason that all that happened, but that was part of it. He wanted to actually be in pulpit and table fellowship with uh, with Presbyterians, for example, um, right. which which was a no no at the time. And and strangely enough, I think a lot of that would be a lot less of a problem today. Um, as much as I don't like the liturgical movement and a lot of the liturgical fruit that came out of that post-Vatican II world, um, the truth is that a lot of those changes in the in led in the Protestant world, led by the Episcopal Church were were latched on by other other protestants um what we now consider the mainline churches they pretty much all did follow the episcopal church's lead in adapting the the revised then book of common prayer liturgically in some way or another um many of those those denominations were not liturgical at all before that or they had kind of at least here in america and so um while while the episcopal church did kind of follow the lead of Rome, the other Protestants followed the Episcopalians with the, with the Book of Common Prayer. Which is ironic because before the uh, liturgical movement, to a certain extent, you know, uh, with the Presbyterians, with their, their Book of Order, uh, with Lutherans, with their uh, book uh, outlining their liturgical services, so much of it's borrowed from the classic Common Prayer tradition, the classic right. prayer book tradition. And anybody who goes to a wedding, I mean, even when I've attended one that's uh, so-called non-denominational, I'm hearing Cramner, you know, like popping out here, there, and everywhere, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, the vows and leading up to uh, the vows. And so there's just something about being an English Christian, regardless of our background, of it's in our bones to a certain extent. It may be lost for the most part, but it's still there. And uh, Isaac, you make a great point about the irony of Bishop Cummins, you know, another like 12 years later uh, leading the Reformed Episcopal Church because of a rejection in part of um, his his favor towards building an ecumenical movement that's based on on, on orthodoxy, uh, not to be confused with the ecumenical mu movement that came later on that really tried to water down uh, distinctives. And he might have been ahead of his time since you have, you know, in 1886, another 13 years, I think, after the Reformed Episcopal Church is formed, you have the uh, Chicago uh, Statement coming out, uh, which later becomes known as the, the Chicago uh, Lambeth uh, Quadrilateral. And in the, the original, there's not too much difference between the Chicago Statement and the, the Lambeth Conference adoption of it. But that Chicago Statement from the American House of Bishops, you know, states that they, they're seeking uh, unity uh, that, quote, is essential to the restoration of unity among the divided branches of Christendom. We account the following to wit, number one, Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, the revealed word of God. And number two, Nicene Creed is sufficient statement of the Christian faith. Number three, the two sacraments, baptism and the supper of the Lord, ministered with unfailing use of Christ's words of institution and of the elements ordained by him. 
for the historic Episcopate locally adapted in the methods of its administration to the varying needs of the nations and peoples called of God into the unity of his church. Not too much of a difference. There's some changes in language there and some additions, especially with the creed, adding the Apostles' Creed when Lambeth uh, adopts it two years later. But it really shows that this vision that Cummins has, you know, is is starting to be taken up, you know, another 20 25 years plus from this uh, sermon and another 13 years after the Reformed Episcopal Church uh, is formed. It's quite interesting. Yeah, that that is. Um, I, I think it also the, the fact of that statement and uh, Cummins' uh, work at this time really tells us that this was sort of a unique moment, especially in American ecclesiastical history. Uh, I recall reading uh, Philip Schaff, who was not at all happy about the Chicago Lambeth statement being a Presbyterian, but a sort of high church Presbyterian of who maybe along with uh, Nevin and other of the Mercerburg theology, we might say, wow, you know, these guys sound pretty Anglican sometimes, you know, uh, I think he said, uh, historic Episcopate, they might, they might have tried the historic presbyterate you know, so he was, <laughs> he was not happy about the direction that things were headed. But um, it, on on two points that, you know, we've we've commented on already, I think, first of all, uh, Cummins recognized that there is this sort of what you guys have already said, unique place or position, maybe a place of privilege within the uh, English speaking Protestant world for the Anglican Episcopal tradition, which is to say, for those less or not liturgical traditions, we become the standard bearer. You know, like you said, Andrew, when it's time to get married and they need a a wedding rite, they look our stuff up and just crib it, right? They take what they like, they print it off, and they use it. Um, Also, for the Lutherans and other uh, maybe German Reformed groups or whatever, which came over here and after a generation or two began to use English in their services, you know, these immigrant groups that were, you know, German speaking or whatever their initial language was very often. And this is true in the Orthodox church as well. When it came time to say, well, we, we do the Venite, but how do we do it in English? The work had already been done for them. Right. Yeah. And and very often they would just take, well, Kramer's, you know, he was no slouch, so we'll use his, right? Um, and that's, you know, uh, to sort of show my hand, um, I currently live in a town that uh, used to have an Orthodox Anglican presence that I was able to attend, and that thing uh, folded underneath me. So my family has, I like to say, I didn't quit the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church quit me. Uh, <laughs> but I'm still, you know, uh, hope, hope and pray for, uh, you know, another, another opportunity here in my hometown. But, you know, so my family, uh, we attend a Lutheran church that actually uses that, a service that is descended from that old appropriation of Cranmer in the Lutheran tradition. And they're, what they do on Sundays is closer to what we got in a 1928 prayer book than a lot of modern Anglican churches are doing, which is a weird thing, right? So it kind of gets back to it. Yeah. 
there's a real irony there of, um, you know, common prayer is sometimes, you know, even the, you could say the core of the, of the prayer book tradition is sometimes better observed outside of Anglicanism than it is within. But another point I wanted to make just about Cummins is, uh, and we can get the, to this as we discuss modern uh, ecumenical developments with the Anglican Church. Um, part of what got Cummins so much heat with uh, the Episcopal other bishops at the time was, in the opinions of some, he was he was building bridges with all the wrong people, right? <laughs> so if you were of a more Anglo-Catholic bent, like think of a, a close contemporary like uh, Bishop Charles Grafton operating, you know, at nearly the same time. And uh, what what is it? What is that uh, gathering called? The Fond du Lac Circus is sort of the derogatory uh, term that's used. You've got Cummins on one side saying we need to have uh, intercommunion with our fellow uh, evangelical reformed Protestant brethren on the basis of common prayer. And then you've got Gafton who's saying, hey, we need to have, you know, relations with the Orthodox, the, you, you know, these uh, Oriental Orthodox and whatnot. Um, who old have Catholics. Old Catholics, absolutely. People who have more in common with us on the basis of maybe this apostolic succession or a sacramental theology. And so there is a sense in which, as we discuss ecumenical opportunities, they're very often seen by those who are the most excited about them as an opportunity to shore up some essential of Anglican identity in-house that maybe isn't being fully appreciated by finding people outside of the church who are in agreement with us. Inevitably, because they're not Anglican, they're not going to be fully appreciative of perhaps some other essential or bulwark, as it were, of the Anglican faith. And so the people who are really excited about intercommunion with the Missouri Synod Lutherans, for example, are very often not the same people who are really excited about intercommunion with, say, the Orthodox Church of America or the Polish National Catholic Church. Right. So I, I think that's sort of this early division that created the Reformed Episcopal Church, you know, in the 1800s, still kind of carries with it this internal um, point of tension when, when we have this discussion about ecumenism. I think it's a good, healthy uh, tension to have, you know, because we, we've talked about before, I think we, were, we weren't even recording, you know, we were just kind of discussing uh, United Anglicanism, where um, I'll use the, the low and high church distinctive, and everybody has a different definition for that, from ceremonial to theology, but theologically speaking, from the low uh, to central to high churchmen, we were all united for for centuries under uh, the formularies, and uh, and we've all three of us have, have yearned for such a unity again. But likewise, with this kind of external, you know, ecumenical outlook, you know, I can't help but think of uh, the Lambeth uh, Conference uh, in the 1920s. I think it was the 1920 conference came together and came out with a more fuller statement in one of their resolutions, and it's entitled like uh, an appeal to uh, Christian people 
and, and we can drop that in the, in the show notes perhaps, but there's this great paragraph. There's like different points, you know, like one through nine, I think. But the second point it makes is that the United Fellowship is not visible in the world today. You know, like, you know, very self-evident. Nothing has changed. And uh, here we are 102 years since that statement. But I like what they point out. They point out, quote, on the one hand, there are other ancient Episcopal communions in the East and the West to whom ours is bound by many ties of common faith and tradition. On the other hand, there are the great non-Episcopal communions standing for rich elements of truth, liberty, and life, which might otherwise have been obscured or neglected. And they end this with this hope, quote, we cherish the earnest hope that all these communions and our own may be led by the Spirit into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And it really, you know, I like that's a great ecumenical statement of being united in the unity of our faith, not just, you know, saying oh, we don't really have any differences uh, amongst each other, but having these hard discussions and seeking unity. And there's a sweet irony that you pointed out, Jesse, of we may have some unity in common prayer uh, with some of these traditions uh, that has developed over time. And Lord willing, um, because of many of the uh, shifts in society and culture in the West, you know, especially, we may find greater unity in our common prayer as we work out, perhaps, Lord willing, a common theology, which may not happen until the Lord returns. But it certainly gives me pause for reflection on, hmm, we may find ourselves praying the same prayers and therefore being able to discuss theology a lot closer uh, together. And that's one of the things I really do like about the Lambeth Quadrilateral, that that kind of baseline for at least working together, baseline ecumenism. I had read an article a while back, um, and I wish I could find it. It was, it was something that uh, uh, Father Eric Parker had passed on um, once upon a time, but it it kind of talked about that the uh, the main architects in in proposing the Lambeth Quadrilateral or what became the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Um, were originally kind of proposing a replacement for the 39 articles. This idea that haven't we gotten beyond some of these distinctives? That's a complete mistake, but the way it's adapted as here's a baseline for ecumenism, I think is a really good approach. I concur. Yeah, I, I agree. As we continue to discuss this uh, possibility of ecumenism, someone might be thinking, well, why is this so important you know why why should anyone care um and the first thing that comes to mind is uh ut unum sint right christ praying that we would all be one that is very often sort of uh, where people lead out with uh ecumenical discussion uh which i think can raise the question of like is there a sense in which we are united in baptism even if we don't all have the same bishop or pastor, you know, um, and and so in what in what ways are we united and in what ways are we divided? So that those are that's one conversation to have, but another that comes up, especially as we you know, Orthodox Christians of various stripes are going are increasingly finding themselves uh, huddled together in um, the trenches of a a war again a spiritual warfare really where people of, with a lot of power in our culture are extremely hostile to the Christian faith, right? If you believe what the Bible and our founding fathers of this nation taught about 
or just everyone assumed about, say, marriage or um, who a man and who a woman are and et cetera, et cetera, increasingly this sort of thing is pushing uh, Orthodox Christians of various stripes um, into a huddle. <laughs> and this is, you know, if, if nothing else, this is, I think, a lot of people that are understanding what, what's been called the ecumenism of the trenches, uh, a, a good reason to maybe get better acquainted with one another and see um, how we can be uh, laboring together for Christ and his kingdom to reach the lost, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I don't know if you guys have any further comments on that, but I think we should start to take a look at, uh, Andrew, you sent us this College of Bishops Provincial Council um, Ecumenical Relations Report, which is mm -hmm. fresh off the presses, says June 12th through the 16th, 2022, so we can link to that. Um, but I think that we could even just go through these different communions that apparently the Anglican Church in North America, I understand not everybody listening is part of the ACNA, um, but it behooves us all to see what uh, Anglican, you know, Orthodox an Orthodox Anglican province of good size is doing and how it's comporting itself uh, amongst our brother and sister churches out there. I guess sister churches, right? Where the mm -hmm. is it, it's really bad to sound say sister wives, but of the <laughs> <laughs> sister brides. <laughs> hey, this is oh, not a Mormon geez. thing. Yeah, oh boy, gosh. So if you're miserably offended, I apologize. That was all me. I can't blame it on the baby. Um, anyways, hey, I'll go ahead and just pass the mic to someone else. <laughs> well, I just want to note the irony that, you know, our, our I don't know what the official title is. I should know better, but I think our chief ecumenical officer, if that's not the name, we'll call it that, for ACNA, is, uh, is presiding bishop Ray Sutton of the Reformed Episcopal Church. Of course, the, yeah, the that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, that is that is really cool. I mean, that, that's yeah. a good historical thing going it's, on. There's kind of a beauty there, you know, and, and I know that a lot of people listening will probably say, hey, the Reformed Episcopal Church has changed a lot. It, it has, but there is a beauty, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, some poetry, uh, the, the way the Lord uses people and, and uses things that have been born, you know, well over 100 years ago. Uh, I doubt that uh, Bishop Cummins would have foreseen, you know, what would happen, um, you know, <laughs> with the Reformed Episcopal Church and and how it's been such a leading figure uh, into speaking new life in Orthodox Anglicanism uh, here in America, in North America, and, and also in leading ecumenical talks. And so with that kind of being said, you talked, Jesse, briefly, you made a point about, you know, some people want to focus on certain uh, groups to speak with, certain denominations. Others want to speak to other denominations, you know, namely more of the uh, Catholic denominations of East and West, Roman Catholic and, and Orthodox churches. Others with the the, the Protestant uh, diaspora, but I have to give some credit that ACNA has been able to to speak with with all parties involved and having varying levels of you know success, uh, but at least you know reconnecting to where so many discussions had you know kind of petered out because of of what's going on uh, in the Anglican Communion uh, at large. So definitely very encouraging, and you know with these different notes. I'll, I'll skip down to note three on the document. You know, I guess we could probably put this in the show notes as, as well. 
And the reason why I'll skip down is just because it's it's very relevant and in a new development, I think, that none of us really heard about. And it's called the Aldersgate Mission Society. They actually have a website. Uh, if you Google that, Aldersgate Mission Society, it'll pop up. And um, and I'll just you know kind of briefly read some of these notes here of what is it because it was news to us. It's a new mission society. Uh, it's going to be under uh, the oversight of uh, Bishop Lowenfield, uh, which is Western Gulf Atlantic, as memory serves, and then um, the Reverend Doctor of Winfield Bevins, who's at Aldersgate Seminary, as I recall, uh, will serve as the canon and prior of the society. And what is a society? Well, it says, quote, society just seeks to keep a rule of life in the Wesleyan tradition. Uh, Bishop Clark has posted his report with the College of Bishops and summarized it at our meeting. For your information, the Methodists have established a conservative gospel denomination called the Global Methodist Church. Promises to be the counterpart to our own ACNA and GAFCON. In the meantime, we're providing fellowship where possible with Methodists in distress over the collapse of the United Methodist Church into the same kind of liberalism that we've seen in the Episcopal Church and the ACC, the Anglican Church in Canada. So interesting development because it's a natural barrier. I wanted to latch onto it because I'm I was born and raised in the UMC, uh, left it uh, for uh, Southern Baptist circles until I started cracking open my church history for the first time and read myself into Anglicanism. So I kind of returned home to where John and Charles Wesley um, always uh, stayed, always were part of the, the Church of England, the Anglican Church. So I think it shows that there's opportunities for outreach and to serve as a safe harbor, to serve as a lifeboat for other, you know, Christians who are facing battles in their own denominations. And if they're needing a, a lifeboat, they can certainly find one where common prayer and a common tradition exist. So thoughts, gentlemen? That's, I think that's very interesting, um, and it reminds me uh, of another sort of uh, ecumenical classic th that I have on my library, which is uh, a book that came out in the 70s, I want to say, called Growing Into Union in response to the current scheme at the time of the Church of England and the Methodist Church in England to uh, sort of basically collapse into a single body mm -hmm. which has i think that more or less taken place since then but uh it was fascinating and what i love about the book is you had resistance from people who were saying we're not opposed to the union but this thing needs to be done uh right and you have these great theological conservatives from both the evangelical reformed side like j.i packer and from the Anglo-Catholic side, people like uh, E.L. Mascal. And um, to get people like that to sit down and come up with agreements on, say, the authority of Scripture and tradition, uh, common prayer, the Eucharist, baptism, it's like, oh, that's, that, that sort of thing nourishes my soul, you know. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, these guys coming from different sort of uh, sides of the church are able to speak in such robust ways about what's at the heart of Anglican faith. And just kind of, you know, I think this Aldergate Mission Society development is really cool and may well, hopefully all of these ecumenical 
opportunities will present that kind of opportunity for us to say, okay, well, how can we work alongside with these guys? Well, step one, we have to, you know, know thyself basically, and really, um, see, be able to articulate where we can agree and, and where we have more work to do. Yeah, I, th I think that's pretty important. And I, and I think that's been one of the difficulties with having anything like a united Anglicanism as well, is that we have not done some of that work. And um, I mean, we, we, we saw this in the 70s when, uh, with, with, when, when the continuum was, was fracturing. We've seen that more recently with some of the, uh, the difficulties that, that, that are there you know, in ACNA and GAFCON. And um, yeah, we, we, we've got to do the theological work if it's going to be anything more than surface level. Um, that said, you know, there, there is some important, I, I think it's important that we can um, do some of those surface level things. Looking back at this uh, doc document um, from the uh, College of Bishops, um, one of the ones I was very interested in when it was first happening was the dialogue with the LCMS, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Yes. And um, so, it's, so this one, this one I think is a really good example of a kind of cooperation when we recognize there's some insurmountable theological issues. So this is point five in the document. It says the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod dialogue. There has been one ecumenical meeting since last June at the Reformed Episcopal Seminary in Pennsylvania. Um, right, Reverend David Hicks is the Episcopal representative. And then it says a second dialogue was held on May 23rd through 24th at the LCMS headquarters in St. Louis. It was concluded that our focus will be on witness together in our culture. That's an important recognition to make. Okay, we've got some things we just can't agree on for, for that full communion. But there are things we can do together, and those are very important in an increasingly, as 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 y'all said, a kind of hostile culture to uh, to to biblical Christianity. And I'll right. add there that I mean the fact that the LCMS has talked to ACNA has pleasantly surprised me. So I give credit to uh, the representatives on both sides for being willing to dialogue. And to be quite frank, I think that. We in the ACNA and in other Orthodox Anglican bodies have a lot to learn in terms of them being uh, consistent, at least from, from my viewpoint of just watching LCMS circles, you know, fairly consistent and sticking with their own uh, formularies. And I hope that we paid attention to that and we do the same with our own uh, so that we continue having a robust conversation um, that brings more unity, at least with the tremendous issues that we're facing as a society and culture. Right. And, and they that, had a fight for that on their, on their end. I mean, they, yes, they had a yes. big fight, yes. you know, just a few decades ago to keep, keep that orthodoxy within their denomination. Yeah. I, I was going to uh, make that same point, Isaac. I, we can also learn from the LCMS sort of what it takes to maintain institutional um, integrity and strength as an orthodox church um here in north america because you're right that the seminex battle and the way it was handled um was took frankly a lot of guts and a lot of people who had the convictions to stand for what they believe in and to say we're not gonna let the heterodox we're not gonna give them an inch 
<laughs> which quite frankly, um, whether you love everything about all the decisions there, um, I'm pretty favorable, quite frankly. Uh, I think that's an attitude that uh, we, we could really use in the contemporary Christian church because um, the devil loves your kindness, you know, and would love <laughs> to see uh, the Orthodox compromise themselves in order to um, appear nice, you know. Uh, it's not necessarily, um, you know, a, a position of strength or, or or even real compassion, but nice, you know. Nice is an external thing. Nice is how other people think we look. So um, I think that's another good one. Continuing on the Lutheran theme, you know, I, I have a... a I went to an LCMS uh, school for my grad degree. I have, you know, currently attending an LCMS church with my family. I love them. But like you said, Andrew, the, the fact that they even came to these meetings and have continued to was kind of a shocker. It means that, you know, and they kind of have a reputation as being um, standoffish, even to other more or less Orthodox Lutheran traditions. Um, but I, I think there is hope, and one of the reasons is uh, the North American Lutheran Church, that's uh, item number six on here, actually has communion fellowship. They do have transfer of ministers back and forth um, with ACNA ministers. Now, they look a lot more like the ACNA than the LCMS does, where they've got, uh, you have women presbyters being ordained there, um, you know, they are late of the ELCA as much of ACNA is late of the tech. So, you know, there's a similar sort of trajectory there. Um, but perhaps even more uh, encouraging to me was item number seven here. Same here. Yeah. Evangelical Lutheran Church of Latvia, mm -hmm. where they point out these guys have apostolic succession that would make any Anglo-Catholic happy. Mm -hmm. But they also have theological agreement and I think ministerial unity. I'm not, or they're in full communion with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we, we might be able to pull off some kind of Cummins like reunion, uh, you know, <laughs> if, if we really can, you know, make these things work. And, and quite frankly, I hope that um, the more staunch, uh, positions of some of these Lutherans on like, hey, are you preaching the gospel clearly? Like, hey, are you sure you want to have uh, gals in uh, clericals, etc.? Mm -hmm. I hope that we will take a cue from them on those issues, but... I feel the same way, you know, and and we focused a lot on, on these Protestant discussions and I think it's, it's one part because we all know that like, look, Rome is not going to suddenly change its opinion on uh, Anglican orders, much less on Anglican theology. There's still discussions going on with them and with the Orthodox Church, but there's a lot of development really going on, a lot of news, and you can tell when you look at this report yourself, going on with these, you know, uh, various Protestant groups and finding similarities, and, um, and I'm encouraged by it as well. I was looking through this report, and I could have sworn that we had uh, a representative from ACNA go to um, one of the Latvian churches, and uh, I may be overlooking the statement there, but uh, it was very, yes, yes, here it is. It was, it's point seven B, if anyone's like wanting to look along. It talks about, it says, I was invited. I'm assuming there was uh, Bishop Sutton who's writing this. Uh, I was invited right. by Archbishop, Archbishop, excuse me, 
Janus uh, Van Oggs, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Latvia to preach and share altar privileges in March 2020 at his cathedral church in Riga. Riga. Uh, this is also to be the occasion for beginning of ecumenical dialogue between our churches and the express desire of being in full communion via concordant with the ACNA. And then, oh, now here it is. Due to COVID and international travel prohibitions, the trip had to be unfortunately canceled. I thought I'd read that that was going to be planned, but the fact that they're desiring uh, full communion and these discussions are going so successfully, and like you pointed out, Jesse, they are in full communion with LCMS, shows how, you know, Anglicanism can really be a point of unity in the uh, great uh, diaspora that is the Christian church these days. Yeah, if we find out later that there was a miscommunication and Archbishop Van Eggs was like, uh, we invited you to what? No, it's uh, Wiener Schnitzel and good beer. It's full communion to us. No, I, I, I only joke. But I really hope, because that is such a strong statement. I love it, and I really hope that that's, you know, the trajectory here. I'd be okay with the Wiener Schnitzel and beer myself. But... Same here. <laughs> amen, amen. All right, that's true. Hey, uh, well, we've we've covered a lot of ground here, um, and then we we can probably wrap it up, or we can even uh, readdress some of these things in further episodes. Any final thoughts from the miserable offenders? Uh, my 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 biggest thing is that boy, we just have a lot to pray about here. We do absolutely. I'll, I'll point out two things for any of our Anglo-Catholic listeners who are interested, you know, read this report, there's a lot of info in it, but for Roman Catholics, you know, it looks like that the goal is to recover the 1968 Malt Agreement, which if you're not familiar with that, maybe we could discuss it in another episode, but of the, the goal is to have recognition of, of, uh, of being a separate communion uh, recognized by the Roman Catholic Church. The Philippine Independent Catholic Church, there's a concordant uh, that apparently there's an official concordant between the PICC and ACNA. It's not been officially signed, but that's basically ACNA replacing itself with the Episcopal Church on that concordant. The PICC broke off the concordant due to what's been happening in the Episcopal Church. So very much good moves happening uh, with the uh, Episcopal uh, Catholic communions. Yeah, I've I've not been super sanguine about... Um some of that institutional unity and that's you know i say this by way of confession more than anything else but yeah we we do need to pray and, I, and the and these are good developments um and, and and i very much hope that some of these things help us to get helps us to get our own house in order um you know within north american anglicanism as well absolutely um finally we, we didn't talk about the continuing evangelical episcopal communion mm-hmm. um but I think, look, if you're listening to this and you're from the Anglican continuum, uh, you know, another a different jurisdiction from the ACNA, you might be thinking like, whoa, golly, why is uh, why is the ACNA sort of, uh, you know, the 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 big the big one? And and why why don't these other orthodox jurisdictions talk to us? And I mean, I think that just at a practical level, size matters, you know. Um, that having a, a larger communion makes you a bigger target, puts you on people's radar. But, um, you know, as a hopeful thing, it, I love to see that the ACNA is talking to other Anglican jurisdictions and that included in this ecumenical report is uh, what 
looks like, yeah, it's going to be leading to or can lead to um, greater union within the Anglican bodies themselves, which was sort of the, the, the whole premise behind us starting this series. So that's very encouraging to me. And, and to my daughter, obviously. If you <laughs> well, it sounds gentlemen. like uh, that's about it. Yeah. Gents, it's always been good. Until next Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Until next time. Take care now. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again today to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.